All right, so good to be able to, uh, to worship with you all this morning. If you would like to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2, if you have access to God's Word on your phone or your tablet, sure, and, and bring that out. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, continuing this process of, of working through these Seven letters that are given to churches there in the western part of what we know of as Turkey. They would call it Asia Minor, but in this western part of Turkey there, seven letters that are given in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. They give us a picture of what does it look like to experience the victory of God at work in, in our lives. I'm so thankful for men like Mr. Ron and so many others of you men and women who have made it possible for us to have the freedom and independence that we have in our country. And so we come together on a a weekend like this, being reminded by so many of you with your colorful shirt uh, and outfit choices this morning, being reminded of that good gift of freedom and independence and patriotism being one of the greatest gifts that we have. One of the worst gods imaginable, but one of the greatest gifts that we have, this gift of freedom, this gift of pride of country, that we have something like religious liberty. Religious liberty is something that, as you've traced back, our church is a Christian church, a part of a group of churches called Southern Baptists, and for Baptists, religious liberty and this idea of soul freedom, soul liberty, meaning no government, no institution, nothing is in place to stand between you and God. Your relationship is between you and God. Not on your terms, always on God's terms, but no government can force you in to a particular form of beliefs. And if you're here this morning as a guest of family or friends, or you're here just curious about Christianity, it's good to know that if you are not a Christian right now, that that decision of following after Christ, of believing in God and giving your life to Him, is something that no one can force you into. We don't live in a country, and we don't believe in a religious system in which anyone forces you into that decision. We have freedom, we have liberty, we have that relationship between us and God that stands only because of Jesus Christ. And so when we come together on Independence Weekend like this, Fourth of July weekend, it's not just a holiday that we celebrate, it's something that sets at the very core of what we believe about our relationship between us and God. So as we come to God's Word this morning, I pray that through His Word that you'll know more about Him, about what it means to follow after Him. And so we're going to read some verses about that, and then I'd like to pray specifically about this Independence Holiday weekend, and then we're going to get right into to the message Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent." 
or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't gather to hear a speech. We don't come here because of religious obligation. God, we gather because your word is true and powerful and victorious and active among us. And God, I pray that as we gather thinking about uh, the gift of freedom that we have and what that means and the sacrifice that's required for that for a, for a nation, God, at the same time, we see reflected in that the true freedom that we find in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that makes that possible and what it means for us to have a relationship with you that no one forces us into, that no one coerces us into, but God, we know that that relationship is only possible because of Jesus. So we come before you, God, praying that you would speak to us through your word and that we would respond in faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we get started this morning, if you have that bulletin in front of you and you want to turn it over to the back, there's some notes that you can use to follow along as we go through. But the sermon this morning is really getting down to the core of what it means to have truth on one side and lies on the other. To say what is authentic and true and right and what is a fake, only pretending to be true, pretending to be right. And when you live in a world where you seem to be surrounded by lies, how do you determine what is really true? So my first word of encouragement to you this morning, I know this is going to be, you know, just blow your mind. Don't believe everything you read on the internet, all right? Don't believe everything you see on social media. I know you can leave happy at this point because, you know, of that, of that little, little word of admonition there, but don't believe everything you see on the internet. Out, there, there have been some situations in the last few weeks where satire articles, satire being that form of literature where we make fun of something by making up a story that seems true but it's not really true because it's cutting at the heart of something else. Some of these satire articles have crept up in Christian life and Christians have thought that they were true when they really weren't true. But then I realized sometimes when you read news headlines because of the crazy world we live in, it's hard to tell whether or not it was really true or whether it was made up. So we're going to play a little game of Christian headlines, true or false. You ready? All right, here we go. Matthew McConaughey's latest movie character was inspired by the Bible. Is that true or false? Is that a real headline or not a real headline? It's really a headline. I'm so sorry to tell you. That is a true headline found on a Christian news source that apparently Matthew McConaughey's latest movie, which I don't even know what it is, I'm still stuck on that terrible auto commercial that he did where he like waxed eloquently while he was driving down the road with one hand. I've never gotten past that. But uh, whatever his latest movie is, apparently there's a Christian news article out there that it's based on the Bible, okay? So you get a feel for how this is going to work. Number two, Hillsong Church, which is probably the most famous church in the entire world, launches a 24-hour television network. True or false? That's true. 
I'll let you know Emmaus has no plans for a television network. But there's a church out there that has just recently launched its own television network 24-7 where you can listen to their music and watch their sermons and conferences that they do. Okay, So that is an actual true headline that was found on a Christian news source. Number three, family's piety lasts 12 seconds after leaving church parking lot. That's actually a title, a headline that came from one of these Christian news satire, so that's not a true title, though it's probably true for your family. Uh, There's a website out there that's become popular lately called the Babylon Bee. Uh, The Babylon Bee is this website where people make up these stories that are based on weird things that happen in church life and Christian life. And they wrote an hilarious news article about this family that came to church and worshiped together and smiled and hugged everybody. And the moment they got in the car and headed out of the parking lot, the five-year-old hit his brother. And then the brother reached over and grabbed the kid's toy. And then the teenage sister started yelling because her her siblings were crazy. And so that's probably going to be your experience when you leave church this morning is all of the piety will break down when you get in the car. But uh, okay, next one. Arizona Church raising money for new church plant with beer and tattoo Bible conference. True or false? That is true, actually. That is an actual story that is really happening. There's a church that's trying to raise money for a new church by having a tattoo and beer conference. And no, you cannot go. And no, we're not going to do that. So, uh, sorry. One more. All right, here we go. One more. Nation's hospitals prepare for influx of shell-shocked VBS volunteers. That's from that Babylon Bee made-up headline. But it could be true. It could be true. If you've served in Vacation Bible School or gone to kids' camp, that might be, might be reality. When you live in a world where you're surrounded by so many lies, so many things that are fake, so many things that are made up, how do you determine what's really true? And more than that, why does it matter if it's true or not? Back to Revelation chapter 2. To the angel... Of the church in Pergamum. What does it mean that this text, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, was written to the church at Pergamum? We've already addressed this as we've gone through the book of Revelation, but one of the things we know about this area and about the place there at Pergamum is that it was an area where people were beginning to worship the emperor. So a human government official, the ruler of the Roman Empire, the emperor, people were beginning to give worship to this man as if he were a god. The first temple that was built to a living emperor was built in Pergamum. It's a city that led the way in giving worship to the Roman emperor and what we would call false worship. Worship given to a god that is not truly a god because the emperor was simply just a person who had great power. Also at Pergamum, it was a major medical center. If you were going to study medicine, one of the places that you would go in this area is you would go to Pergamum. If you see what is still commonly given as the symbol for practicing medicine or or doing pharmacy work is a snake wrapped around a pole, that that Asclepius sign is a sign that goes back to the city of Pergamum. It was one of the places that was developed. Another thing that Pergamon was known for in the ancient world is it had the second largest library in the ancient world. 
The largest library in the ancient world was located at Alexandria in North Africa there. But the second largest library in the ancient world was located at Pergamum. It was a city that valued worship, that valued knowledge, whether that was medical knowledge or whether it was just knowledge about books. And the other thing that you had here at Pergamum is you had this huge altar that was given to Zeus. You had this huge altar to Zeus. If you go to Berlin today and you go to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, you can see this huge altar, this huge replica to the altar that was given to Zeus that's still on display today in in Berlin. So in Pergamum, everything about knowledge, everything about wisdom was present there, but what wasn't present there was any distinction between what was true and what was false. What's true knowledge and false knowledge? What's true worship and false worship. And so Jesus comes to this church and he says, I want you to know the difference between true and false because ultimately it's the difference between life and death. That's why he comes in the very next phrase of Revelation chapter two and he says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. When Jesus comes to them in this letter, He comes described as the one having the sharp two-edged sword. Now, in all of these letters in Revelation 2 and 3, the description of Jesus always points back to a description of Jesus that was given in Revelation chapter 1. So the person, John, who wrote the book of Revelation is tying together chapter 1 with these letters in chapters 2 and 3. And Jesus is described here as the one who has the two-edged sword. In the Bible and really just in all of ancient literature, there were two different words that were used for a sword. There's one word that is used for a short dagger that was either used just for close contact combat or was also used to do sacrifices. So there's this short dagger, and then there's a longer sword, a different type of word that's used for this longer sword. This word here in Revelation chapter 2 is the longer sword. There's, there's actually in ancient literature a distinction given about 16 to 18 inches being when you went from one word to the next. The only way I know to describe this is that scene from Crocodile Dundee. Sorry that you guys don't know anything about Crocodile Dundee down here, but uh, Paul Hogan playing Mick Dundee, and he, he goes up to that punk kid in New York, and the punk kid pulls out a little knife. And then Crocodile Dundee pulls out a knife. He says, now that's a knife. You know, uh, that's kind of the difference between these two words in Scripture. There's a knife, and then there's a real knife. If you haven't seen Crocodile Dundee, I can't actually recommend the movie in good faith to you. But, but it gives you an idea. There's a short knife, and there's a big knife. The word here is for the big sword. But the idea of sword in Scripture is almost always connected to what? To the Word of God to the true word of God. Ephesians chapter six, I think I have these words uh, up on the screen. Ephesians chapter six, verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, these two verses that are on the screen, Ephesians chapter six and Hebrews chapter four, they're the word for the short dagger. Not the long sword, but but the short dagger. So the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword or two-edged dagger. So you have established in scripture this relationship between a sword and the word of God. Then you get to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, it talks about in verse 16. 
In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Out of his mouth comes this sword. So we know that the sword represents the true words of God. Down in Revelation chapter 19, you get a really famous passage from the book of Revelation that ties in with this idea of the sword being the word of God. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on the white horse is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Kind of lock that phrase in the back of your mind until a few minutes down the road, but we're going to come back around to that. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What the book of Revelation makes clear of over and over and over again, which you also find throughout Scripture, is that God's Word is true, God's Word is powerful, God's Word is active, and God's Word is always victorious. True and powerful and active and victorious. And the book of Revelation becomes a war of words. Sometimes we read war imagery and military imagery in the book of Revelation and immediately we go to modern warfare. But in the book of Revelation, it's not a war of military, it's a war of words. Is Jesus Lord or is the emperor Lord? Is Jesus the king of kings and lord of lords or is there another force, another power over here that really controls things? And what's happening in the book of Revelation is you have a group of people who all around them, everybody else is following the ways of the Roman Empire. Everybody else is following the ways of the world. And you have this small group over here, this group of Christians who are saying, no, I know that looks true, but actually Jesus is Lord, and we are going to follow him completely with everything we have to give. And so Revelation becomes this war of words, and it's a war between Jesus and Satan. And you see that in verse 13. In verse 13 of Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. And then it says again, where Satan dwells. Now what we find here is consistent with what you find throughout all of Scripture, that when the enemy of God, when Satan is described, Satan is described as a deceiver. But what we also find here, and this is a very key point about how the book of Revelation works, what we find is that Satan's power is ultimately limited. And the reason we know that is because in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So he's talking to a group of people who live in this particular area, and he says, I know that Satan's throne is there, but where is the throne of God? In heaven, beyond the things of this world. 
So what is happening in verse 13 is he's saying, I know that Satan has power, and I know that the lies of the world have influence over you, but this is it. This is the only scope of influence that exists. This is where that throne is. But the true power of God, the one who is true and faithful and right and victorious, his throne is above all of this. And so it limits Satan's power, his influence, his deception, just to this area. There's a lot of debate about what is meant where it says that Satan's throne is there. Is it talking about the temple of Zeus? Is it talking about a particular area in Pergamum? Probably it's just talking about the whole area in general, that this is an area where the people are, are so bombarded with the things of the Roman Empire, with these lies. Uh, one of my professors who wrote a book about the book of Revelation, he says that Pergamum is the poster child of all that is wrong with John's world. Pergamum is the poster child of all that's wrong. We lived in New Orleans for a while, we know what it's like to be in a place that's the poster child for sin <laughs> and the poster child for evil and the poster child for everything that seems to be wrong with the world. Pergamum functions in that way for the ancient world. It seems to be the poster child for everything that's wrong. And Satan is able to have power through deception. In Revela- or not in Revelation, but in John chapter 8, verse 44, and I think I got this verse up on the screen for you as well. John chapter 8, verse 44 It says, he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here at the beginning of this letter, you have Jesus who comes with a sword from his mouth speaking the true word of God, and you have Satan, where Satan's throne is, giving out all of these lies. And what we find as the letter goes on is those who follow after Jesus are those who follow after the truth. Those who follow after Satan are those who give in to these lies and deception. So that takes us back to verse 13 and then to the second point on your notes there. Not only is Satan the father of lies, but we know what it looks like for there to be true disciples and what there looks like for there to be false teachers. Verse 13, it mentions here that you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. In the book of Revelation, there are only three names that are mentioned. John, who's the writer, Jesus, who's the hero of the book, and Antipas. Only three people's names are mentioned in the entire book, John, Jesus, and Antipas. Most likely, Antipas here was a leader in the community, someone who had influence, someone who the people would have looked to as probably a local teacher or pastor or prophet in this area. But something happens, and all of those realities of living in the Roman world and staying true to Jesus come to full bear on his life, and he loses his life. He becomes a martyr. He becomes someone who is killed for his faith. There's some incredible books out there where you can read about people throughout history who have died for their faith. One of the most famous, if you're interested in looking into some of these accounts and what it looks like for people to stand true to the Lord, even unto death, one of the most famous out there is called Fox's Book of Martyrs, except Fox is spelled F-O-X-E. 
Fox's Book of Martyrs is, is a well-known. It was written actually originally back in the 1500s, but it gives some incredible accounts of those who have remained true to Christ even to death. More recently, there are a couple of books that have come out by a man named Nick Ripken. Uh, Nick is spelled N-I-K. Ripken is R-I-P-K-E-N. And Nick Ripken, it's not actually his name. He writes under a pseudonym because of some security reasons, but He's gone around the world and interviewed Christians who were persecuted for their faith and tells their stories of how God has sustained them. And some of these have, people have, have lost their lives because of their faithfulness to Christ. He, the book, one of the first books he wrote is called The Insanity of God. Now I know that title sounds like a strange, it's meant to be uh, an intense title, but it's called The Insanity of God. And then he wrote another book after it called The Insanity of Obedience. But both of those books detail what it looks like for people to stay faithful to Christ in the midst of a world that's completely opposed to the things of Christ. And Antipas here is one who would have been brought before the Roman emperor, or probably not before the emperor, but brought before a local official and asked to recount, recant his faith, to say not that Jesus is Lord, but that he's going to give allegiance to the Roman Empire, that he's going to give worship maybe to Zeus or to the emperor, to someone having power to a god in this area. And the reason we know this is because there's a letter that has been found from the ancient world that was written from a Roman official named Pliny to the emperor Trajan, who was the emperor right after the book of Revelation was written. And you can go online, if you just uh, search Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, and then the word Trajan, T-R-A-J-A-N, you can read this letter that this Roman official wrote to the emperor, and it talks about the process that they would go through in interviewing these Christians and trying to determine if they were really Christians or if they were just pretending. And some of you, I think, had a chance to even read that letter this week in preparation for this morning. But it's fascinating to see how these officials would determine whether or not someone was pretending to be a Christian or whether or not they really were a Christian. And in Antipas's case, he would have come before these officials and he would have said, no, I'm a Christian no matter what. No matter what it costs me, I'm going to remain faithful to the Lord. And Antipas here in Revelation 2 becomes the hallmark of what it means to follow after Christ. But then there's a contrast in the next verse. So you have Antipas as the true and perfect disciple. But then in verse 14, look what Jesus says. He says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of of immorality. And then it even goes on in verse 15 and talks about this group called the Nicolaitans that we don't know much about, but we know that this prophet or this false prophet who was working under this title Balaam, or actually it was probably a title that was given to him, and this other group, that they are teaching things that are false about Christianity, that are false about following Christ. Next week, we're going to come back around and we're going to talk more about false teaching and the church and what that looks like and how we respond to that. But in this case right here with this teaching of Balaam, what we need to make sure we understand is that the false teaching that was being given, it's not just that it was wrong or that it was intellectually wrong. It's that the result of the false teaching led to actions that were far from what the Lord wanted. If we're not careful... 
And if we get too intellectual about things, we can pick out things that we call heresy, like that person teaches heretical things because they teach things that don't match the Bible, and it just becomes an intellectual game. And what we miss is that it's not just that it's wrong teaching about Scripture, but it's that it's wrong teaching about Scripture that leads to wrong actions, that leads to actions that are far from what the Lord would have us to to be following after. And that's what you have with the teaching of Balaam here. Balaam is a story that comes from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 22 through 24, which we're not going to read all three of those chapters, but if you want to go back It's a story that kids love because it involves a talking donkey that's not Shrek. So it's Shrek meets the Old Testament. Um, But in this story of Balaam, Balaam is a prophet who one one of these nations that was opposed to Israel comes to Balaam and they want Balaam to prophesy against the people of God. They want Balaam to give a false prophecy against the people of God. Balaam won't do it, but finally he, sits out, he, he goes out on this journey. And as he's going on his journey, his heart's in the wrong place. He completely seems to be motivated by greed and power. And the donkey sees an angel on the road and doesn't want to go forward. Balaam doesn't see the angel, so he starts to beat the donkey The donkey gets tired of being beaten and begins to speak to Balaam and say, stop beating me, there's an angel of the Lord in the road. And Balaam looks up and recognizes the angel of the Lord. And so he continues on his journey and gives the prophecy like he's supposed to. Except you find out the very next chapter in Numbers chapter 25 that the people of God completely turn against the ways of God. They begin to practice idolatry idolatry they begin to practice sexual immorality and then you get to numbers chapter 31 verse 16 and you get this verse that's going to be up on the screen that kind of brings the teaching of Balaam to to uh, uh, to an end behold these cause he's talking about in this verse these is talking about a group of women who were causing trouble in this in this area these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now obviously to understand that verse fully, you would need to read the story that leads up to it. But what's happened is it seems like Balaam has given some people in this area advice about how to trip up God's people. And he tells them, if you'll just lay a couple of stumbling blocks in their path like idols and attractive women, they're going to give in to idolatry, and they're going to give in to sexual immorality, and it happens. And so Balaam becomes known throughout Jewish history as a false prophet, as one who taught in such a way that it led God's people away from the life that they were supposed to be living. And Balaam shows up in the New Testament in the book of Jude, and also in the book of Second Peter. The verses from Second Peter are up on the screen Right here, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Not the greatest description. And then the next verse, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Okay. So here's what's happening. 
The true word of God is facing off against the father of lies. Antipas is a disciple who remains true to the word of God no matter what. You have false teachers over here who are teaching in such a way that they're leading people away from the way of God. Here's what they're doing. They're leading people to compromise. They're leading people to say, I want to be a Christian, but it really doesn't matter how I live. I want to be a Christian, but I really want to hold on to some of my old pagan religion. I really want to be a Christian, but. And all of this compromise begins to work itself in so that no longer are they being Antipas, who is described as a faithful and true witness, someone who portrays what it means to follow Jesus, but they're being enticed to live another way and yet still hold on to the name Christian. Do you know what it feels like to live in a world and to live in a culture where you're constantly tempted to compromise what it means to be a Christian? Do you know what that feels like? Yes, you do, because we do it every single day of our lives. What does it look like to remain faithful and true devoted to the true word of God when all of these lies are out there that look so good, that say, just go this way, and you can still call yourself a Christian, but you can still participate in all of these activities over here that are contrary to the word of God. The temptation is there daily to compromise, to say, I'm gonna take my eyes off God's word, and I'm gonna put my eyes over here and give in to that. And we recognize the depth of that. We recognize the pain of that. And so at the end of this letter, Jesus sets before them true reward and temporary compromise. Look at what happens in the next verse, in verse 16. Notice what Jesus says. What's the remedy for living in a world where you're constantly tempted to compromise? Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The call is to repent. The call is to make themselves right with God. Notice that what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I know you're living in a difficult situation. I know things are hard right now. Just take it easy and do whatever you want. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus calls them back. He says, repent and come back to the word of God. Because you know what compromise always leads to? More compromise. That's just how life works. We don't compromise a little bit and then come back being closer to the Lord. We compromise and then find ourselves further to the Lord. And you know what more compromise leads to? Ultimately to destruction. So here's the formula. Compromise leads to more compromise, which ultimately leads to to destruction. And you find that there in verse 16 where it says, else or else I'm going to come quickly to you and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The war comes through the word of God as they're forced to see their lives compared with what God would have them. Compromise brings sometimes good results in the short term, but always leads to destruction in the long term. And so instead of that, Jesus wants to focus their eyes on something else. And that something else comes down in verse 17. In verse 17 it says, to him who overcomes, and overcomes here means someone who remains faithful and true to the word of God. 
To the one who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. What does he mean there? What's he talking about? Well, once again, you've got to go back to the Old Testament and pick up some of the story here. The manna being this bread product that God provided for the people in the wilderness. That God provided exactly what they wanted, but the people didn't like the manna, so they grumbled and complained, and the Lord brought judgment against them. But in the New Testament, here's the key. In the New Testament, Jesus picks up on the idea of manna, and in John chapter 6, he begins in John chapter 6 by feeding 5,000 people. And he feeds them with these loaves of bread and fish. And so Jesus is picking up on this idea of God feeding the people in the Old Testament with manna, and he feeds the people with these bread, with these loaves of bread and fish at the beginning of John chapter 6. And then you get to the end of John chapter 6 to verse 35, and Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, Jesus is giving himself. He is saying everything that you need, everything that is good, and true, and powerful, and victorious is found in me. Don't compromise. Don't run after the lies of the world that look so good in the short term, so pleasurable in the short term. Come to me, because when you come to me, you will find that I am the bread of life, that I will satisfy in a way that nothing else could ever satisfy. And then he gives them another description in verse 17. He says, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. All right, I'll just be honest with you here. Scholars have almost no idea what this white stone is referring to. You can find five, six, seven different options about what's going on here with the white stone. Probably what's happening is we know the meaning of it because the meaning is meant to fit with the manna that just came before. And the meaning ultimately is that Jesus will give himself to the people. In the ancient world, it was common for people to wear an amulet around their neck. And oftentimes, these amulets would be white stones, and sometimes they would draw a a picture on them. And the amulet was meant to ward off the evil eye. Now, if you have maybe gone astray a couple of times in your younger days of life, there's a good chance you've seen the evil eye before from your mother or your father, or your grandmother, or maybe your spouse gives you the evil eye. Like, you know what the evil eye looks like when you've done the wrong thing. And and people would wear this amulet around their neck. It was supposed to be magical that sometimes on the back of the amulet, they would write some sort of secret, what they considered to be a divine name, and it was supposed to ward off evil. Another thing that white stones were used for and this was common in, in the area where Pergamon was located, is white stones were, were used when juries would give a decision about whether someone was guilty or innocent. And the white stone was used for innocent, and the black stone was used for guilty. Now, trace this out, because I think this makes a lot of sense in light of these verses. Here's Antipas, someone who went on trial so to speak, before the Roman government. And he was 
convicted. He was found guilty of being a Christian, and he lost his life as a result of that. But here comes Jesus in the book of Revelation saying, you know what? I'm not giving a black stone. I'm giving a white stone. The Roman government might have found Antipas guilty of being a Christian, but I find him innocent. I give him freedom. I give him life because life is ultimately found in me and he remained faithful to me. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, is about whether or not our lives are oriented toward the truth of Jesus Christ or whether we choose to compromise and say, I'm going to live for everything else and still try to hold on to this title, Christian, over here. Will we live for what is true and powerful and active and victorious, or will we live for a lie? That's the question. Here's how we're going to wrap up our service this morning, a little bit differently. If you would take your bulletin, your worship guide, in front of you, and you would open it to the flap uh, on the right side. One side of the flap gives the schedule and the giving. But the other side at the top has a responsive reading. And I put it on here in case your eyesight isn't great for looking at the screen. But the words will be on the screen as well. As we come to a response to the service this morning. We're going to together speak God's word and do it as a prayer. I pray that you will use this time right now to look at your heart and to say, what am I living for? Am I living in such a way that shows people this is what a follower of Jesus does? Or am I living in such a way that I know I've compromised? I know I've not remained faithful to the Lord. Psalm 119 Verse 33, I'll read the italics. You respond with the bold. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your decrees. Is that your prayer? To the end. Follow your way to the end. Not part of the way. Not while it's easy or convenient. But are you making a commitment this morning that you will follow the way of the Lord to the end? No matter where that journey takes you, no matter whether that path leads, that you will follow him to the end. Verse 34, give me understanding so that I may keep your law. All my heart. Not part of my heart. Not part of my life. Think about your life. Am I ready to obey the Lord with all my heart? I'm giving everything to him, not holding anything back, not saying this part of my life is my own, but I'll give this to the Lord. Make a commitment this morning, based on God's word, that we will give all of our heart to him. Verse 35, direct me in the path of your commands. Delight. I recognize in a worship service like this, it's hard to say that phrase with delight because we're in a responsive reading context. But delight that God's commands, the true word of God given to us to give us life, leads to delight. Do you find delight in following after the Lord? Or is it more of a duty, a drudgery, something you do out of obligation? Or do you find delight in the word of God because it's victorious and true and powerful. 
Let's read that last phrase over again, verse 35. Direct me in the path of your commands. Verse 36. Turn my heart toward your statutes. Remember what 2 Peter, verse 15, said about Balaam? He was interested in selfish gain. He would follow after any teaching if it brought gain back to himself. Antipas said, I'm not in this for selfish gain. I'm going to remain faithful to the Lord no matter what it costs. Some of you at work and in your family and in your relationships are put in situations every week that you have to determine, am I going to live for selfish personal gain or I'm going to live for the Lord? Hard, difficult decisions you have to make at work and at home and with your friends. We live for the Lord, not for selfish gain. Verse 37, listen to this phrase. Turn my eyes away from worthless, worthless things. I'm going to pray for us. After I pray for us, those who are taking the offering, if you would get up and help with that. If you're here this morning and you've gone through our membership process and you desire to come and finalize that membership process, you can come forward during the offering. Let me pray for us right now as we move into this final part of our service. Father, I pray that as we look at your word and then we conclude that time by speaking that word back to you as a prayer, God, even though that seems like a different way to end a worship service, God, that we would find our hearts focused on you. That the true word of God produces true and faithful disciples who will find true and lasting rewards. And yet we know that the father of lies, the enemy of God, produces false prophets that lead to temporary destructive compromise. God, rescue us from compromise and focus us on your word because in your word we find life and hope and every good thing. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.